Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Second Peter. Last week, we had our second blizzard that canceled Wednesday night activities, and so we're back again. So 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week was the longest week. All right, so before we actually um, read 1 Peter um, chapter 2, actually it's going to be verses, we already looked at verses 1 through 3, it's actually going to be verses 4 through 12. But before we look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to go back to Matthew, Matthew 16, verse 18, to what Jesus said. Do you remember they're in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus turns to His disciples and says, Who do people say that I am? And some of them are like, Well, you're Elijah, you're a prophet, you're Jeremiah. And then He's like, Who do you say I am? And then who speaks up? Peter says, you are Jesus, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. Okay, so Peter made the confession that Jesus was the Christ. Who wrote 1 Peter? Peter, okay. So what did Jesus say to Peter when he made the confession? Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now there are many interpretations of this passage of Scripture, especially from a Roman Catholic vantage point. Um, Come on in, guys. Um, the Roman Catholic Church thinks that Peter is the rock upon which Jesus builds the church, and thus Peter was the first pope. That's not the way we understand this. We say that Peter's confession is what Jesus is talking about. So there's a couple things about this passage of Scripture in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus tells us about Himself. Number one, it's Jesus' church. Okay? I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. So who builds the church? Jesus. Okay, so who's the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Please don't say Sean. It's Jesus is the senior pastor. Okay. Secondly, what does Jesus do? Jesus builds the church. Do we build the church? We can't build anything. Jesus builds the church. He's the chief shepherd. Okay, and then what does Jesus say? The gates of hell will not prevail against us. So all the powers of hell will not stop what God is doing in His church. So with this ringing in Peter's ears about building the church, Jesus being the head of the church, Jesus saying this in light of Peter's confession, we get to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want you to look at this building imagery that Jesus, or that Peter uses to describe Jesus in us. Okay? So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, 
4 through 12. We already looked at verses 1 through 3 the last time we were together. So everybody there? Petros numero uno, 1 Peter, <laughs> chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Okay. Okay, so start, start in Spanish, finish in Spanish. I didn't even know what language that was. So. <laughs> As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We'll just stop right there. How's Jesus described? He's described as a living stone. Now, what do you think about stones for a moment? Are stones living? No, they're inanimate objects, but Jesus is the living stone. Now, all of this imagery that Peter's using, he's assuming that his audience knows their Old Testament. So a lot of this stuff comes back from Old Testament imageries that prophesied about who Jesus was as the, the living stone. Okay? So there were many prophecies from the Old Testament that spoke of the coming Messiah being the cornerstone, the chief stone, the foundation stone for the nation of Israel. For example, Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in Haste. So Jesus is referred to as the living stone. Now, this Sunday is what? We in Christian circles call it Resurrection Sunday. I mean, Easter is what we call it, but I'm just giving you a hard time. It's the Sunday that we celebrate what? The resurrection. So if Jesus is the living stone, that means that he has died and he has rose again and he is living today as the living stone, the resurrected Christ. But also, notice what else it says. As you come to Him, a living stone, we're in verse 4, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus is chosen and precious. means He has the highest honor. He is of the utmost value. But what have the people done? They have rejected him. Okay? So, there's a comparison here. Who is the living stone? Jesus. He is the only one who's the living stone. He is the one who is chosen and precious. But then look at verse 5. I'm going to give you guys the, the literal translation. Y'all yourselves... <laughs> 
Y'all yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house, okay? The you there in verse 5, it's very important, it's plural. You guys from Colorado, y'all if you're from the South, you corporately as the elect church, all of us are connected to the living stone, Jesus, and we are also living stones connected to Jesus, and we're being built up as a spiritual house. So, we are being built into a temple. Is the temple a physical structure? What is the temple? The church. Okay, now, the Bible speaks of your own personal body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, but corporately, as a, as a people, we together make up the spiritual temple, the living stone. So, so Peter's making this metaphor of a building that would have made sense to them. Like just this past week, what famous structure almost burned down? Yeah, Notre Dame Cathedral. Okay, I've, I've got pictures of it. I've been there. Um, most of the wood part of it burned, but what did not burn? The, the mason, the stonework because of that. So in those ancient, think about like Greek architecture, ancient architecture, like when they built a building... I mean, they put the stones in there and they crafted it so that it was solid. Okay, so Peter's got this image of, of Jesus being the foundation and we're being built together as the church. So who's doing the building? Yes, Jerry. The, uh, on Facebook tonight I saw where the only thing that was standing on this one section was the cross. Yeah. And nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how when things burn, what's left, right. it's kind of like on 9-11, the cross that was there. Um, notice that we're being built up. We don't build ourselves up. We're not the ones doing the building project God is. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew, I'm the one that builds my church. Okay. Think about how stones are used in a building project. If you want to build a building... Let's just draw it on here, okay? If you want to build a building and you find a stone and you find another stone and you find another stone, if you want a solid building, do you want to have them like three feet apart and try to fill it up with mortar? What do you do? You make the stones as close as you can and then you fill it with mortar. So... A solid building has stones that are close together. Now, why am I talking about that? What's that a picture of? The very image of the church, if we're living stones being built together with Jesus, it's this whole idea that the church is a close-knit, intimate community that we share a spiritual life together. As a church, we are the spiritual house. We love one another. We pray for one another. We strive for unity. We forgive one another. We grow together. We encourage. We disciple. All these things we do together. Okay? So, it's not a bunch of stones off on their own doing their old thing in a pile. It's stones coming close together in close proximity being built together. So the picture of the church is we're in close contact with each other. We're interwoven together in fellowship. Okay? Now, let's just ask a question. What's the image here that we're we're being built in verse 5, we're being built into a spiritual house. 
temple. Okay, in the Old Testament, what was the primary purpose of the temple? It's a place of worship where Israel would have their sins atoned for and they would meet God as a nation. Remember back to your Old Testament. Who were the primary servants or ministers in the temple? Did your Joe Blow Israelite, could he go in and do all the stuff in the temple that was required? Who was it? The priests, specifically the Levitical priests, the Levite priests. So in ancient Israel, only a small select group of people, men, had the priestly duty to actually offer worship and praise to God in the temple. They did the sacrifices. They kept the, the, um, the fires burning. They um, made sure that the bread of presence was there. They, they were the ones that ministered in the temple. Okay, they had that responsibility. Okay, Old Testament, Levitical priesthood. What is Peter saying here? What's changed now? Do we have a Levitical priesthood anymore? Not technically, but who's the priesthood? Look what he says. Read your Bibles. You yourselves, y'all, us, are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that Old Testament imagery of the priesthood, only a select few, now every single stone... Every single Christian is in close-knit proximity where God's building us together as the church for the primary purpose of what? What's our primary purpose as a church? What does he say there? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about Old Testament for a moment. What were the sacrifices the priests did in the Old Testament temple? Animals, bulls and goats and rams and birds. And what? Oh my, yeah. Do we offer those type of sacrifices today? No, because Jesus came as the final sacrifice. We're not told to go sacrifice animals. The sacrifice that we're supposed to bring is worship a lifestyle of worship. What does Romans 12:1 say? I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. So as the church God's people no matter what things we would have on our priority list of things to do as a church if worship is not number one, we have things out of alignment. What's our mission statement in Emmanuel? What's the first statement of our mission statement? We exist to display God's glory. That's where it all starts. We, we display God's glory. Then we declare God's gospel and disciple for God's great commission. But it starts with God's glory. So what's the primary purpose of the church? The key word being primary. Is it evangelism? Is it world missions? Is it caring ministries? Is it feeding the poor? Is it children's program? Is it fellowship? These are crucially important to the life of the church, and we never want to get rid of them. But the most important thing we can do is 
worship. So, we need to offer worship that is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A lifestyle of worship. Let's think about worship for a moment. How often do we live our lives focused on ourselves and not on God? Who do we end up worshiping most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves? Ourselves, others. Does God have a rightful place in our hearts? Uh, This is not in your notes, but John Calvin said, The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Of idols. The human heart is an idol factory. So we want to crank out idols to worship because we find things more alluring than Christ Himself. So our ultimate purpose in life is to worship Jesus. Okay? Now, verse 6, it stands in Scripture, and so he's going to give a quote here from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him in Him, will not be put to shame. And it's interesting. Notice Peter says, whoever does not believe in it. Is a stone an it or a him? If you're being technical, what's a stone? An it. But Peter says, so the, whatever stone that the Old Testament is talking about here is not an it, it's a him, it's, it's Jesus. Okay? So if you believe in Jesus you will not be put to shame. Okay? What does it mean to be put to shame? What's what's he mean there? Be put to shame. Cast out where? Into hell. Okay. So if you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have the security to know that your sins are forgiven, you have eternal life, you will never be put to shame. So this is our security. Notice it says, you will not be put to shame. Those who've been born again, those who have a living hope, those who have an inheritance, all the things he talked about in chapter 1, we will never be put to shame. What, what, do you think, what do you think the looks on people's faces are going to be when they face judgment that don't have Jesus as their Savior? Is there going to be shame? Especially when all their sins are exposed? When we see Jesus face to face, will it be a day of shame or a day of joy? day of joy. Okay. Now, verse 7 and eight, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Okay, this is a direct quote from Psalm 118.22. This is Peter's way of saying there are many who have rejected Jesus as the king. Now, here's why I need to teach you guys a little bit of Greek, because in your English, you don't quite get... There's really no way to translate this um, smoothly in your English text. There are two words in the original language used for 
cornerstone. Okay? In verse 6, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. That word means a foundation stone. So I'm going to just draw a picture here, okay? I know those of you on Facebook probably can't see too far away, and especially those listening on the podcast. Just picture like a picture an ancient temple or structure. Okay, so the first word for cornerstone is a foundation stone. I remember when this church was being built, this the, the, the new building that we're in. It's hard to believe in, in June it'll be 10 years we've been in this quote-unquote new building. But I remember when the foundation went down and... Um, you know, we'd walk out here, and when, when the building was being built, um, there was a time, and I've got it on video, where there's prayers. We came in here, and prayers and scriptures are written on the floor in all the rooms under the carpet. Got on video where you can see where people wrote different things, and they wrote stuff up on the stage. But this building would not be able to stand without what? A foundation. Every building you go, it's only as strong as its foundation. So who is the foundation of our faith? So the word cornerstone, when you think of cornerstone, what do you normally think of? Like the top one, right? Okay, that's not the Greek word that's used there in verse 6. It's actually the foundation stone, the, the stone that's on the bottom of the building. Okay, the only other place that this specific word, this Greek word is used is in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Okay, so Paul uses it in Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the bottom stone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can take Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 and lay them side by side. They almost say the same thing. God is building us into a spiritual house. Okay? This word means the foundation stone upon which the structure rested okay first corinthians 3 11 through 13 no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is jesus christ so who's the foundation of our faith who's the foundation of the church who is our support who undergirds us who, who, what is everything set upon it's upon jesus so he's the the foundation okay now there's the second word for cornerstone and it's literally a compound word in the Greek language, and it means head corner, or what you would probably think of cornerstone, the topmost or capstone, which linked the last tier together. It would bind two rows together. It was the keystone which completed the arch. So think about it this way. You've got the foundation. Who is the foundation? Jesus. Okay, so you got the structure, however you have columns or wood or whatever, and then you have your beams, and then that top beam that holds everything together, that's the other word he uses for cornerstone. So the capstone. So just look at the image, guys and gals. 
Who's over the church? Jesus. Who's holding the church up? Jesus. Yeah. So who's the foundation? Jesus. So Jesus is the foundation for the church. Jesus is the head over the church. So he's the chief shepherd. So Peter uses two different words to kind of convey that image of not only is Jesus the foundation, but he's also the, the leader, the top, our, 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 um, our head. Now, it's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What's it mean that, the, that Jesus is offensive to people? A rock of offense. The cross, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this Sunday. The cross, for some people, is an offense. It's a stumbling block. They don't like Jesus being the only way of salvation. They don't want to repent of their sins. They don't want to come in brokenness to Christ. They don't want Christ to be the only one that can save them from their sins. They would rather just continue in pride, continue in idolatry, continue in their sins. They don't believe in Jesus. There's an old Puritan saying, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the sun. Sun can do a lot of good, can't it? If you've got ice out there, what's the sun do? It melts it. But also, if you have clay, it can do what? Harden it. Okay, so think about the gospel. The gospel's like the sun, the message of Jesus. For some people, when they hear the gospel of Jesus, like an ice cube, they're going to melt. They're going to repent. They're going to see their need for Christ. They're going to come to Jesus. For others, when the gospel comes to them, they're going to be like hardened clay where this going to, they're not going to want it. They're going to refuse it. It's going to be offensive to them. Same Jesus, same message, right? Same son, right? But it's the condition of what it's being acted upon. The ice cube melts because it receives the sun. The clay hardens because it's its nature to harden. And so there's this stumbling that people will do that won't believe in Jesus. Have you ever met somebody who, no matter what you said, no matter what you did, no matter how many times you told your testimony, no matter how many times you told the gospel, they just flat out rejected Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with it. Why? They don't believe, but why don't they believe? It's a stumbling block. Yeah. Now, notice the transition in verse 9. But you, you guys again, okay? Y'all. We as God's people are different. We're not destined for hell. We're not going to be offended at Jesus. We're not going to stumble over Him being the only way. We've put our hope in Him. This is some beautiful imagery here. What Peter does, and this is one of my favorite passages in Peter, 1 Peter 2.9. Peter gives four titles of honor for us as believers. 
four titles. And all of these titles come directly from Old Testament Israel, what God called the Israelites back right when they came out of the Exodus and in those times when they were, they, they were about ready to go into the Promised Land. Okay? So, all these come from the Old Testament descriptions of the nation of Israel. So, before we do that, I just want to remind you of why God did what He did with Israel and why God does what He does with us. So, here's the question. Why did God save you? Did He have to save you? No. Was He obligated to save you? No. So, why did God save you? You know what they... Okay? Because He loved us and because He wanted to. Okay? Why did God save us? Because He's God and He can do what He wants and He wanted to. Okay? Listen to what God says to Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God save and choose Israel? Because He wanted to, because He loved them. It's not because they were all that. As a matter of fact, when you look at Israel, you're like, I can't believe God even would begin to want to mess with those rascals. And then you look at your own life and say... Why did God choose me? Because He wanted to. So let's look at these four titles. First title, you are a chosen race. We've been chosen. God in His sovereign grace chose us for salvation. So did God choose you because you deserve to be chosen? Did God choose you because you were beautiful and intelligent and spiritual? And there were all these things that God looked down and said, You know what, Rico? You are so wonderful. I think I'm going to choose Rico because he's lived up to this awesome standard that I've set. Is that why God chose you? Because when you look in your own heart, you're like, If I was God, I wouldn't choose me. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing in us that moved God to do that. He simply did it out of his own good pleasure. Okay. How did Peter start the, the letter? Go back to chapter 1. How did Peter call? What does Peter call his audience? Verse 1, to the elect exiles, to the chosen ones. So God has chosen you individually for salvation before the foundation of the world, but He has also collectively called us to be the church, a chosen Race. Now, why did he use the word race? Everybody's talking about race today, right? Race relations, racial reconciliation, racial reparations, racism. I'm not here to talk about that, but in the church, what is there any distinction between race or ethnicity in the church? It all comes crashing down, right? Because we're one race. Okay? That's why Paul can say in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all the, the natural and um, 
the barriers that you see out in the world between ethnicities and prejudice and racial divides, all of those things should come crashing down in the church to where we're spiritual stones. doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. If your spiritual stone's being built into a foundation, I mean being built into a temple, we're family and God's building us together and there should be no types of divides. We're, we're one chosen race. What's the race? The church. Okay. What's the second title? You are a royal priesthood. Now, if you don't know a lot about your own Old Testament, this may not make as much sense. This comes from Exodus 19, 5-7. We'll get there in a few weeks. We're going we're gonna to get back to Exodus after Easter, I promise you, on Sunday mornings. We're getting back to Exodus. Okay. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Now, in ancient times, it was not uncommon for a king to have his own order of priests. They would serve the king by having intimate access to him, and they would rule with him as their king. And so what, this, what it means to be a royal priesthood is this. Remember what I said. Who were the privileged few in the Old Testament that had access to God? The priests. Who had ultimate access to God in only one day a year? The high priest on the Day of Atonement. Only that man could go into the Holy of Holies and be that close to God's presence. If we collectively are a royal priesthood, that means that we have intimate access to the very King of Kings. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness because of the blood of Christ. We are a royal priesthood. We have access to the King. Now, there are two things that the priests did in ancient Israel. There's a lot of things, but two big things. The priest would offer sacrifices for the people, and they would offer up prayers for the people. Now, if we collectively are a royal priesthood, and we're to offer sacrifices of worship to the Lord, one of the marks of a church besides worship is a church that engages in fervent prayer. As a royal priesthood, we are to be a praying people, a people that go to the Lord in prayer, that we take prayer seriously. Okay, So we're a chosen race. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be saved, not because of anything in us, but simply because of His love for us. All ethnic and racial barriers come crashing down. We're one race. We're a royal priesthood. We have access to the king to give him worship and to be a praying people. But then the third title is that we are a holy nation. It's one of the key themes in 1 Peter is holiness. Remember last time, be holy because I'm holy? This comes from not only Exodus 19, but Leviticus 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, we already looked at this in great detail last time, and so if you don't remember that and you have the notes, you can go back and look, you can go back on Facebook and watch or go back and listen. But basically what it means is that as a church family, 
We are to be distinctly different from the world around us. We are to have lifestyles and choices and attitudes that reflect the gospel, the word of God, as opposed to being morphed like the culture around us. So think about how countercultural the church is. There should be no racism or ethnical divides in the church. We should be a praying, worshiping people, and we should be a holy people. In all reality, guys and gals, if we're living the way God has called us to live, we should look pretty freakish or weird to the world. They should look at the church, they should look at us and be like, there's something not right there. I mean, like in a good way. There's, some, there's something there. These people don't have the same attitudes that we have. They don't treat the pe- people the way we do. They don't have the, the racism and, and, the, and the ethnical pride that we have. These people are a praying people. These people are connected to one another. These, these people are different. Their lifestyle is different. There's something different about those people. Can't quite put my finger on it, but they're different. If we're really living the Christian life, that's the way non-Christians should be looking at us. Okay, what's the fourth title of honor? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, a treasured possession. I think the King James says a peculiar people. Now, the word peculiar today means that's kind of peculiar. That's not what, it, that's not what the word means. Uh, Deuteronomy 14.2. By the way, there's a town in Missouri called Peculiar. My cousins lived there for a while. Ray Moore, Peculiar, they went to a high school called Ray Peck. So it's Peculiar, Missouri. It's like outside of Kansas City, like south of Kansas City on your way down to Springfield. Deuteronomy 14.2. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Treasured possession. Uh, this word treasured possession has... Many nuanced meanings, but in the original language, it just really means that we've been bought at a valuable price. Not only have we been bought at a valuable price, but God continues to guard us and preserves us, and He holds us tightly in His grip. It means that we're His. He's never going to let us go. We're His people. So, why did God do all this? Why did God choose us? Why did God set us apart as holy? Why has God caused us to be born again? What is our purpose? Well, look at the word that in verse 9. That, purpose clause. Here's the reason why God chose you and did all these things. That you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The bottom line is that we have been saved, we have been set apart, we have been chosen to do what? Worship God. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Now, notice what word it says there. Does it say worship? What word does it say in your Bible? Verse 9, that you may what? Proclaim the excellencies. It's the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. It means to publish abroad, to publicize, to placard on a billboard, to to go public, to, to boldly announce to everybody your love for Jesus. 
to go public, not to hide it. And what are you to go public about? What are you to be excited about? What are you to boldly proclaim? The excellencies. Anybody have a different word besides excellencies? That's not a word we use often in our, in our language today. Excellencies. Praises. Excellencies. These are the mighty acts of God's power, His glory. So what are we to be publishing abroad? What are we to be telling people about? What are we to be broadcasting well, there's two things we need to think about as a church. We need to be worshipers, but we also need to be bold in our witness. Worship and witness. What's the primary purpose of the church? Worship. But right next to it is witness. They go together. You worship by witnessing, and when you witness your worship, okay, you see how they work together? When you proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into light, you're worshiping God for your salvation, but you're telling other people about that and how they can experience that salvation as well. You're announcing the gospel. You're telling people about Jesus. And what's happened to us? In verse 9, what's happened to us? God's called us out of what? Darkness into His marvelous light. And what, what does it mean, darkness? Does that mean we're just walking around in the dark? What's, what's, what's he talking about? What is, a spiritual, what is darkness? Your life before Christ was marked by darkness. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Five descriptions of lostness there. You're dead. You follow the world. You follow Satan. You follow your flesh. And you're a child of wrath. And that's what we used to love and walk in. We were in darkness. Notice what Jesus says about darkness. Right after John 3, 16, 17, 18, John 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people did what with darkness? Loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So it's not just that you're born morally neutral and you can kind of choose to sin here and there and you're not that bad. What's the condition of you, you as a lost person without Jesus? You're spiritually dead. You love darkness. You hate the light. You follow your flesh. So what does God call? God's called us out of that. Now, do most people that live in darkness know they're in darkness? That's the sad thing. They don't know they're in darkness until you tell them. Now, you look back, those of us in this room that have been saved, when you look back at your life before you were saved, can you honestly say, that was a time of darkness? And now where am I? I'm in the marvelous light. God has called us into His marvelous light. So the greatest miracle that God can do is to call us out of this darkness, out of this pit of destruction, into this marvelous light. This is God's calling on us. It's what we call the effectual call. God calls us out of darkness. And when God calls, 
He creates in us the faith to be able to come so that when He calls, we will come. No one can come to Jesus, no one can come to the Father or come to Jesus unless the Father draws Him or calls Him. So God has done that. So that's a picture of salvation. And what we're supposed to do is, so in the first half of verse 9, it talks about our identity as these people. And then the second half tells us what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to worship and witness at that. Now, verse 10. <laughs> Peter concludes this truth with a very poignant poem taken directly from the Old Testament book of Hosea, who married Gomer the prostitute. Did you ever know there was a book of the Bible where Hosea the prophet married Gomer the prostitute and she kept leaving him? Okay, now notice what it says there, verse 10. Once you were, okay, there's two, you guys tell me, I'm going to write these on the bullwood. On the bullwood, okay? Once you were what? What's he say? Once you were not a people, right? Once you were not a people. What else does it say? But now you are a people. Once you had what? Not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Mercy. Okay. Not a people, not receive mercy. Now you may say that sounds pretty like self-explanatory. Well, the bizarre story of Hosea. God calls Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And God says, you're going to marry her and she's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to step out on you. This is a picture of God as the husband of Israel and how Israel as the bride is disobedient, unfaithful. They're the, they're the unfaithful wife who have prostituted themselves with other nations through idolatry. But Hosea goes ahead and marries Gomer. And she gives birth to two children. Now, Rico, your daughter's name is Alexa. Pretty name. Okay. Nick, Oliver, and Penelope. Beautiful names. You got your son back there, Isaac, great biblical name. Do you laugh a lot, Isaac? Laughter, okay. Casey and Tegan, beautiful names. Lindy, beautiful name. My son's Aiden and Zachary. Okay, what were the names of Gomer's children? All right, here we go. Hosea 1.6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to her, Call her name No Mercy, for I will not have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. What was her name? No Mercy. <laughs> That's a weird name. What did Peter say was our identity before we were born? No Mercy. Okay, so Gomer's going to have another child. The daughter's name's No Mercy. Okay, Hosea 1, 8-9. When she had weaned, No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, Not My People, for you are not my people. I'm not your God. What did Peter, Peter, Peter say before you were... So Peter takes the name of Gomer's children, No Mercy, Not My People, to describe who... We were before we were saved. So what was our identity before God saved us? Rebellious, 
sinful, children of wrath, living in darkness. At one time, we as a church were not a people. We were not recipients of God's mercy. Now, in all of her unfaithfulness, Gomer was taken back by Hosea as a picture of God's unfailing love to his people. God promised that even though Gomer would be unfaithful to Hosea, he should still take her back because God takes us back when we sin against him. Hosea 2.23 And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So what does God say to the kids that he said, Name your kid no mercy, and name your kid not my people. Because I'm a loving God, I'm going to change their name to no mercy to mercy, not my people to you are my people. Okay? So what's all this mean? Why does Peter go back to Gomer and Hosea? And You wouldn't have known that if I hadn't told you it was Gomer and Hosea. You were just kind of just blown right past that. Here's the point. The great news of the gospel is that God has taken us as unfaithful, filthy children of wrath and shown us tremendous mercy. And what's He turned us into? Verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. He's given us mercy. He's given us a name. He's given us this new glorious identity. We've been saved by grace. Ephesians 1, 7-8, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom. Okay. Before we move on, any other questions? Comments? All right, so Peter's going to shift gears here in verses 11 and 12. Okay, so let's read. So he's been talking about Jesus being the cornerstone, the foundation. God's building us into a temple to be the church. We're to be close-knit. We're to be worshiping people, a praying people, a close-knit body of believers. We've got this glorious identity. God's taken us out of depravity and darkness and given us this new identity. We're to worship Him. We're to witness about Him. This is the way we're to live as the body of Christ. And then notice what he says here in verse 11. Oh, by the way, that's going to be pretty hard to do. So, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, we see a transition here in Peter's letter because he calls us beloved, and then he has this strong admonition. What does he say? I urge you. When somebody urges you, what are they doing? I'm, I'm strongly encouraging you. I'm urging you. I'm, I'm beseeching you. Maybe some of your older translations. He's saying, listen. You've got this glorious identity. And God has called you out of darkness. Let me paraphrase Peter. Don't you dare go back to that darkness. 
He's called you out of that darkness. Don't you dare go back to that darkness. Where's our citizenship? What does he call us again? He uses these weird names. Beloved, I urge you as what? Sojourners and exiles, aliens, pilgrims. Why does he keep using this language? Why are we exiles? Exiles from what? Does that mean we're not in our own country? What's the whole point? Well, not necessarily. What's what's the point he's making? Go ahead and say something, Nancy. Okay, so if you're an exile, if you're a sojourner or an alien or an immigrant and you're living in America but it's not your home, let's say you're from Nicaragua or El Salvador or Greece or Philippines, whatever, where's your true home? Back in your homeland. And until you get your permanent citizenship, what are you doing here in America? You're just, you're an alien. Okay, you're what? Okay, so... Okay, so spiritually, where is our home country? Heaven. But where do we live right now? Planet Earth. Is this our true home? No. It's not our home, but we're here, right? So while we're here until we get to heaven, do we live in a perfect environment? We live in a fallen world. We live in sin. We live in temptations. We've got the world, the flesh, and the devil all coming at us. We've got this glorious identity as the chosen people of God. And and Paul says in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, for from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if our citizenship is in heaven, how should we live? We should live by the standards that reflect heaven. If you are a chosen race, if you are a treasured possession, if you are a holy people, if you are a people who love the light, if you are people who've been called out of the darkness, then should you live like totally opposite of that? No. So what does Peter urge us to do? That sounded like a Muppet. Sorry. Um, urge us. What do you, it's like, Elmo likes to talk about this. So anyway, I don't know where that came from. Have you ever heard my Elmo impression? I don't think I can do it. I can do it early in the morning. Elmo likes to tie his shoes. So anyway. Um, <laughs> did I write the whole book like Elmo? You remember like Grover? Now I'm near. Now I am far. Near and far. And if you listen closely, Grover is the same voice as Yoda. Frank Oz does the voice of Grover. Anyway, we're getting way off tangent here. So... What does Peter urge us to do? Okay, The first command is negative not to do something. The second command is positive. Okay. All right. You didn't know you'd come to Wednesday night and have a Muppet lead you. Um, okay, so first of all, negatively. I urge you to, okay, not to do something. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. What is the word passion? Does anybody have a distranslation besides passions of the flesh? Fleshly desires. Okay. These don't necessarily have to be sexual in nature, although many times they are. But the word basically means an unbridled impulse or craving or desire that comes from your flesh. You just have a passionate desire 
to engage in sin, whatever sin that is. So you're to abstain from that. What does it mean to abstain? Okay. Is there a difference between abstaining and avoiding? Okay, here's the thing. When I was a youth pastor and, you know, even now as a pastor because people still do things, the same things, but I'd have, I'd have teenagers come and say, Pastor Sean, how far can I go without crossing the line with my boyfriend? You're laughing, aren't you? Wrong question. That's like, okay, there's a line here. How close can I get to the line before I go over? Okay, the point is, the closer you get to the line, what's going to happen? Temptation to fall you over. So the question is not, oh, I kind of need to avoid it. The question, abstaining means I need to stay as far away from that as I can. Abstaining means don't do it. Abstain from the lusts. And notice the way he describes it. These wage war. It's warfare. Long-term, aggressive, relentless military campaign in your soul. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Do non-Christians struggle with sin? No. Do non-Christians struggle with sin? Do non-Christians sin? Yes. Are non-Christians bothered when they sin? Maybe because they're afraid they're going to get caught. They're afraid of the consequences. They're afraid of shaming their family. But does a non-Christian ultimately struggle with sin in the sense that he or she knows they're disobeying the Lord and they don't want to do it? Who does the non-Christian not have living inside them? Holy Spirit. A non-Christian sins, but they don't struggle with sin. They just sin because it's their nature. Okay, let's ask the second question. Do Christians struggle with sin? Yes. I got a verse for you too. Okay? If you don't believe me from your own experience, let me just give you a verse here, okay? So Galatians 5, 16 through 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Newsflash. The Christian life is one of warfare. It's one of struggle. Don't think because you struggle with sin, you're not a Christian. It's part of the package deal. Until you step foot in heaven, you're always going to struggle. Now, does that mean that you give in? No. It just means it's a reality. And what Peter's saying is don't give in to abstain from those passions that are waging war in your soul. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the passions that are at war within you? Okay. We don't necessarily have to turn to Romans 7. I'll just give you a paraphrase. Paul basically says in Romans 7, man, there's a lot of things that I'm really supposed to do that I don't do. And there's a lot of things I'm not supposed to do that I do. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why do I not do the things I'm supposed to do? I've got this struggle within me. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man am I. 
Praise be the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers me from this. So Paul struggled with sin. Um, the, the new book that I just wrote that just came out this week, there's three chapters on sin. Um, the first chapter on sin talks about the deception of sin. Why is it so deceptive? Second chapter is, why do I struggle with sin? Third chapter is, how do I kill sin? And the Puritan John Owen says, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. So how do you kill sin by the power of the Holy Spirit? Romans 8.13 gives you a lot of help there. So we are to abstain, we are to kill, we are to war against these lusts. This word for passions, lusts, cravings is all over the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain. I don't like the NIV. Does anybody have NIV for 1 Thessalonians 4, 3? Somebody look it up on there. If you have an, an NIV, look it up. And I, I, don't know why they, I don't know why they used. That's why I asked the question earlier. Somebody look up NIV, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. The ESV says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Um, Nancy, what, is your, what does your New King James say? Does it say abstain? NIV says avoid sexual Okay. What does the NIV say? Avoid sexual immorality. Avoid it. The ESV says abstain. Now, do you think there's a difference between abstaining and avoiding? I don't know. It seems to me the NIV is a little soft on that. Like avoiding, it's kind of like I can just want to avoid. Abstain's like I don't even want to get, don't even want to do it. But anyway, the point is abstain, and that does mean avoiding, but also abstaining. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So, do not give in to the passions of your flesh. Abstain from those passions. Abstain from sexual immorality. 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world... All right, I'm going to read this and count how many times the word love shows up okay. and, and what the object of a love is. Just because the word love shows up, we automatically think love means I'm going to love God or love others. Listen to what John says about the word love. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is passing, but it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't fall in love with the world that will be instrumental in you feeding and fueling those passions that wage war in your flesh. So abstain is what Peter says. So first command's negative. If you're going to live like a Christian in a world that is against you with pressure, with temptation, you've got to abstain from those, those fleshly desires that are in you. Okay, so negative. first one's negative. Second command Peter gives is positive. Okay, so abstain is do not do this. The next command is something we are to do. We're to keep our, this is in verse 12, we're to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Okay, now Gentiles back then was a code world. We could use it today, a watching non-Christian world. Okay, keep your, what's he say there? Does anybody have, does everybody have the word conduct? 
Okay, go back up to chapter 1, verse 15. What does he say in chapter 1, verse 15? Be as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Okay, look at verse 17, chapter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your father with perishable things such as silver and gold. Those futile ways is, is the same word for conduct. Peter likes that word conduct. It means your lifestyle. The totality of your lives. So our lifestyle before a non-Christian watching world is to be honorable. And that word honorable has some nuances of meaning, but basically it means good, lovely, gracious, winsome. It means visible morality, visible goodness. In other words, is your lifestyle... So negatively, don't give in to the flesh... Positively, live such a God-glorifying lifestyle that the non-Christian world sees you that you are truly who you say you are. And I hate the old adage, your walk matches your talk. Okay, that's, I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about there. That you do glorify God, that you are living for Him. And Peter frames this command by saying it's in front of the Gentiles. He's making a distinction between us and a lost world. Now, just for a moment here. Let's be very careful in how we talk to and about lost people. Because if we're not careful, we can have an us-against-them mentality. You can be holier than thou. You can be legalistic. You can think that somehow you're better because you're a Christian. What was your life before? Darkness. What's their life right now? Darkness. Now, I'm not excusing lost people's behaviors, but do they know any better? Don't be surprised when lost people act like lost people. Don't be surprised when they do things that drive you nuts. Because you used to do those things. And sometimes you still do those things, okay? So we need to have a heart of compassion for people who are still in darkness. Just because we're a holy nation and God has, has changed us and God has chosen us and God has delivered us never gives us permission to be prideful and saying, oh, I deserve that and now I'm better. It's by God's grace that He did that to you because He didn't have to. He could have left you that way. And He could have never saved you. So it's never a good idea to think I'm all that because God saved me. So we need to have compassion. How did Jesus view lost people? How did, God, how did Jesus view those who were the outsiders? Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? They were harassed and helpless. They're like a sheep without a shepherd. Lost people are basically a bunch of dumb, blind sheep that are walking around following other people, getting ready to fall off cliffs, following the crowd. They're helpless, they're hopeless, and they're hellbound. Now, notice what he says there. If they speak evil against you, so like if a non-Christian is going to slander you or they're going to make fun of you or they're going to say something bad about you, 
They better not have a charge that sticks. They better be lying, in other words. Because when they see your good deeds, they will glorify God on the day of vegetation. Okay. Here's the th- interesting thing about Peter's context. Let's go back to Peter's context of when he was writing to his, his original audience. In that day where Peter was writing, they were living in persecution of the Roman Empire. All kinds of evil things done to Christians. Do you guys know? This is during the time of Nero. You know what Nero did? He would take Christians and put them up on spikes and douse them with oil and light them up to light his gardens in Rome. He would take Christians and put them animal skins on them and put them in the gladiator ring and let the wild beasts come out and tear their flesh. These were the type of people. So when, when Peter's talking about the pagans, the Gentiles, he's not just talking about, hey, the, my coworker here thinks I'm goofy for going to church. It's like, no, my coworker may actually turn me into the authorities and I may be lit on a torch or I may be taken into the gladiator ring and killed by a wild animal. But Peter says, when they see your good deeds. Interesting word that Peter uses for see. It's not just kind of a casual glance here and there, but it's a, it's a deep looking into. Now, whether we know it or not, non-believers are watching us like hawks. We're under the microscope. It's a pastor I am, and you are too. That may be scary to you. But if somebody knows you claim to be a Christian, what are they looking for? I'm just waiting for them to split, slip, slip up. I'm just waiting for that cuss word to fly out of their mouth so I can get them. I'm just waiting for them to do I'm just waiting for them to blah, blah, blah. Now, does that mean that you should live in fear that if you ever sin, you're going to ruin your witness? I don't think so. But what Peter's saying is he's saying, listen, your lifestyle should be so honorable and God-glorifying and that the good deeds that you do, that they have no charge against you. That we live such a honorable, winsome life that glorifies God in opposition to what? In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, he said the way that we used to walk was futile. We used to walk in darkness and futility. Instead, instead of living in darkness and futility and lust, we are now to live in a way that glorifies God. We're to be light. He's called about his darkness into his marvelous light. What did Jesus say about being light? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, he said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Real, real basic question. Is, if you claim to be a Christian, is your life marked by darkness or by light? Are you walking in an honorable way or a dishonorable way?
Titus 3.8. Saying's trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now remember, we've got to keep the gospel in perspective here. We don't do these good deeds in order to earn God's favor. We don't do these good works in order to get saved. These good deeds, this honorable lifestyle flows out of that identity that He told us who we were back in verse 9. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a treasured possession. God's called you. God's made you into this wonderful people. Now live like that. Live like who you already are. Don't do these good works so that God will make you those things. Sometimes people get the cart before the horse. If I do really good, then God will make me His treasured possession. That's wrong. God made you His treasured possession out of His sovereign grace. He changed your identity. Therefore, now live it out. Be who you already are. Not to earn God's favor, but as joyfully following God. Now, notice what Peter says there at the very end. They will glorify God on the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? What do you think the day of visitation means? What? Okay. There's two views about what the day of visitation is. One view, okay, question. Is it the day of judgment? Or fear? Or is it something else? So scholars are divided on this point. Like when you first originally read it, I think most of us here would say, it's talking about the day of judgment, the day of, the day of visitation, the day of judgment. So one school of thought is that Peter's talking about the day of judgment. And they refer to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3, where this term is used in regards to judgment. Okay, that's one view. The day of visitation, when God comes in judgment. The other view, the, where the house is split, See, the day of visitation is the day that God visits you, not with judgment, but God visits you with salvation, that God visits you with grace. The argument goes like this. When those who slander you as a Christian, when they revile you, when they get sovereignly regenerated by the Holy Spirit in time and finally come to Christ they're going to glorify God because He saved them on the day that God visited them and saving grace. I don't think we can be dogmatic on it. So what's the point? Here's the point. Do people need to be saved? Yes. Is there a final day of visitation? Yes. But is there a time when God comes and does a work in a person's heart to bring them to faith in Christ? So Let's just add, what, what you can't control is the second coming and the sovereign regeneration of a lost person. But here's one thing that you can do. Who in your life right now needs a visitation from God in a positive way? And, I, and what I mean by that is who needs to be saved? Who right now in your life is watching your life and you can impact them by the way you live, by the way you love them, by the way you serve them. They can see a difference in your life. You're glorifying God in your life, and they're attracted to you by being in a stranger in a strange land, and they want what you have. Are you living such an attractively glorious life that a person in darkness would look at your life and say, 
I want that. Or are they looking at your life and saying, that's just like me. They look like they're in darkness. They look like they're just like me. So we're not called to waste our lives, but to make our lives count for God's glory because we have this glorious fourfold identity here. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Because God's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we want to go share with everybody we come in contact with the glory of this news so that they can be rescued out of darkness into its marvelous light. And so as you witness and as you worship, you better have a lifestyle that backs it up. I think is what Peter's saying there. Does that mean perfection? No. Does that mean that we have to live in fear that we're going to mess things up if we kind of don't do things right? No. God is sovereign. God works. Um, but it doesn't lower the, the call to that holiness that, that Peter's calling us to. Okay, so that's where we're going to stop because he shifts gears to a totally different subject in the middle of chapter 2. So do you guys have any questions, comments? Mm-hmm. Okay. But yet they still use God's name. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So there's different there's different categories of people. So, I want to make sure I understand your question. They are a professed atheist. So they're not a professed Christian. So they're an atheist. They don't believe in God. They say they don't believe in God, and they live like they don't believe in God. But they will sometimes invoke the name of the Lord when they need help and kind of pray this or they may say that was a god thing i mean so so they're not a consistent atheist <laughs> they say they're an atheist but they still talk about god okay so your question is how do you how do you pray for them how do you reach them what do you what do you yeah i mean there's yeah i don't know and I want to be careful because I'm not saying that we witness by just our life. Because St. Francis of Assisi made a really dumb statement. He says, um, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. That's like, okay, shoot a basket, if necessary, use a ball. Shoot a rifle, if necessary, use bullets. Yeah, you live your life. Yeah, you need, so you, so there's, there's different ways you can approach, like for that specific person. What I would do is I would do what's called, I would ask her a lot of questions to get her thinking, as opposed to coming at her and being like, so I would just kind of probe and just say, I'm confused, whatever her name is. You've told me on numerous times that, that you don't believe in God, but yet you use the language. Can you explain that to me? And then get her to kind of explain it. And then kind of get that dialogue going. And then you can kind of find loopholes in what she's saying or, you know, logical inconsistencies. So you can kind of get a feel for that. And then you can just say, you know, where is your, like for someone like that, like where is your hope? Where is your purpose? What's your purpose in life? What's your hope? What are, you, what are you banking on? When you look into your heart of hearts, what do you see there? And let her tell you. And that may guide you to be able to answer it with the gospel. But I think coming to her saying, you claim to be an atheist and you use God. I mean, like if you come out her guns blazing like a cute. No, I think sometimes for people it's better to ask questions and draw out where they're at. Um, every witnessing encounter is different. And sometimes we can get so canned into an approach that i got to tell them that, you know, i got to get the four spiritual laws or i got to get. You're dealing with a person who's got a past who's got a present, who's got issues, who's got roadblocks, who's got sin, who's got biases. And it may take some time to 
get those things out in the open. But that's why you need to be loving and encourage, encouraging and, and confronting. If she says that, just you may just like next time have to say, you know what, that doesn't make sense to me. Can you please explain to me what's going on here? And then let her kind of explain. And then if, if she sees the logical inconsistency, then be like, well, why, why do you believe that? Does that make sense? Okay. Isaac, did you have a question or are you just raising your hand? Okay. You're, you're just <laughs> you're stretching. Anybody else have any other questions? What time is it? Oh, it's almost time to go. Now, the clock's back there, but it's... No, it's not. It says it's 7... My clock on my computer says 7.54, and that says 7.58. But it went really fast, because for a moment there, it was like 7... There's something funky with that clock. I'm looking at this clock. All right, well, if there's nothing else to do, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Jesus, I thank you that you've given us this, um, this glorious identity of being a chosen people, um, a treasured people, a holy people. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so, Jesus, may we live our lives in, in just an attitude of worship, witnessing, Lord, help us to not give in to the flesh. Help us to live our lives in such a way that it's winsome to others. Help us to always keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, as the one who strengthens us. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us. Let us always keep our eyes fixed on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. You're welcome.